Hello, and welcome to the Arkansas Center for Health Improvement's podcast, Wonks at Work. I'm Craig Wilson, your host, a self-declared wonk, dad of two boys, native Arkansan, and I've been the health policy director at the Arkansas Center for Health Improvement for more than a decade. On this show, we aim to demystify, boil down, and unwonk, if you will, complex topics so that you can understand how the healthcare system is working or not working for you. On this episode, our 14th, we're going to be talking about end-of-life planning. Now, I know this is a topic we really don't want to have to talk about, and it's easy to put off. But I know that for myself and my loved ones, the pandemic has really forced some of these conversations. And fortunately, it's also resulted in some planning about what we want and who we want making decisions should something unforeseen occur. Now, I know it can seem morbid. But taking control of your health and having an end-of-life plan is always an important conversation. Medical technology has allowed healthcare providers to prolong life well beyond what was possible in past eras. If your wishes are not known before you become incapacitated or unconscious, you don't want to leave your family members with difficult decisions about how far medical treatment should go and when it should end. Now, states have passed laws and created tools and forms to help people make decisions about, for example, health conditions that they feel would result in an unacceptable quality of life, or types of treatments such as long-term ventilator support that they prefer to receive or not receive. As you might expect, though, the overwhelming majority of Americans do not complete end-of-life planning until it's too late. And even for those who have these difficult conversations with their loved ones, they often face barriers to completing documentation or having the documentation available at the critical time of implementation. As we've seen over the past year, complications from COVID-19 happened quickly and resulted in many who were hospitalized, leaving them isolated, alone, and unable to share their wishes. And the pandemic has exposed a greater need for you to exercise your right and express your wishes about the care you receive at the end phases of your life, whenever that occurs, so that you and your family can have peace of mind. Now with that, I want to introduce our guest today, Dr. Mazel George, who's a geriatrician and the director of the Geriatric Palliative Care Program at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences, or UAMS, where she's an associate professor and sees patients at the Reynolds Institute on Aging. Now, she's board certified in family medicine, geriatrics, and hospice and palliative care, and she went to medical school at Tamil Nadu Medical University in India and completed her residency and fellowships at UAMS. Welcome to the show, Dr. George, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. All right. Now, before we get to the the medical stuff, all the serious stuff, right? Um, I want to know what you enjoy most in your leisure time when you step away for a moment from being Dr. George. (laughs) (laughs) Well, when I wear my white coat, you know, it's a cape. I become the doctor. (laughs) You never stop being who you are. Right. And uh, most recently, I went through a divorce and I have been a patient. So I was diagnosed with complex PTSD. I went through anxiety, panic attacks, agoraphobia. Uh, you know, 
a divorce. <laughs> so uh, it's just, it's been a process. Yeah. But I'm blessed to have the gifts of curiosity and focused attention. So I have achieved a, a, a few accomplishments, including, as we were talking about, running a marathon. Oh, gosh. Dancing yeah. with professionals. <laughs> and the most I have enjoyed is uh, learning more about my faith, being engaged in the arts, mm -hmm. and being in nature. Mind, body, and spirit connection. Yeah. Healing and well-being. Excellent. Excellent. So I ask this of all of our wonky guests, and they come on the show. What would you say is your theme song? There is so many, depending <laughs> on my mood. However, if I had to pick one, it's going to be one from The Wizard of Oz. Oh. Off to see the wizard. We're off to see the wizard, the wonderful wizard of Oz. Off to see the wizard. <laughs> hey, it's That's a girl a with a one. song and a purpose leading a bunch of people with illnesses towards right. the answer. Great. That's yeah. a great answer on the, on the yellow brick road. Right, right. <laughs> All right, so tell me a little bit about your work and what drew you into the specialties, that the multiple specialties that you have. What drew me, um, I must say it was a, a, a force of nature. <laughs> <laughs> I was like Jono and the whale. It's the farthest thing from what I really wanted to do. Really? When I was in med school, as I went through the different rotations, I really enjoyed ophthalmology huh. because it was instant gratification. You know, you do eye surgery, a person couldn't see. After the surgery, they can see. Click, yeah. It just made me feel really good. I thought that's what I wanted to do, and that's what I got to do. I uh, did uh, qualify to be an ophthalmologist in India. Hmm. By strange turn of circumstances, I found myself in America, and uh, uh, I could not get into ophthalmology. So... I did family medicine, which was my standby. And then um, I realized I really like family medicine. I run towards a challenge. So the hardest part of family medicine for me was taking care of an older adult. Yeah. Because I wasn't sure if they were safe and if they were respected and if, this, if they were okay. You know, I had very little time and expertise, I felt. Mm -hmm. And so I did a fellowship in geriatrics. And again, in geriatrics, the toughest population for me to take care of were the ones who were frail and dying. Yeah. And so I learned me some more uh, knowledge on how to take care. <laughs> so See, I learned me very, some. You, you know? learned you hey, some knowledge. I'm an that, Arkansas. It, that is extremely <laughs> tough work, I'm, I'm, I'm sure. Um, so as a geriatrician, you, you engage with, I'm sure, lots of issues, but but certainly end-of-life issues. and. I know they're tough conversations, having had them with, with my family. So as a practitioner, though, how do you go about these conversations with your with your patients and, their, and I'm sure their loved ones? And how often is it that the patients themselves engage in these conversations without you having to prompt them? Well, um, you know, in general, we have these conversations as a, for a new patient at the clinic and uh, during an annual wellness visit, so just okay. as a check for, you know, are you depressed? Uh, is there a risk of falling? Are there memory issues? So all those screening parts. So there's some regularity old, yes. as so part of a protocol. Right. Yeah. The uh, Medicare annual wellness visit for someone who's over 65 has that questionnaire built in. Mm -hmm. 
But more importantly, it's about whenever there is a status change. You know, if a person is diagnosed with a terminal illness, a yeah. life-limiting illness, a new serious illness, and it could be anything like congestive heart failure or renal failure or cancer, where we feel like this is a life-threatening, life-limiting illness, there is a sense of urgency. Yeah. If there's someone who's admitted to the hospital or who has had to move from home to nursing home, then there's been a status change and an urgency to making sure that, um, you know, we verify. And just because somebody has a document, um, it doesn't mean that it's up to date. So right. we try right. to go over it at least once a year and at every time that there's a status change okay. to update that information. And, and, and do they, I mean, how, how frequent is it that, that they do this on their own without you having to prompt them? Um, you know, surprising number of people actually have this information okay. completed as part of their estate planning. So when somebody right. develops, right. you know, uh, uh, establishes uh, uh, an estate plan, then there's a question at the lawyer's office, unfortunately, right. about, hey. Unfortunately. <laughs> so the lawyers are doing a good job of prompting these conversations before, as a lawyer, I have to. I have to Brag on yourself <laughs> a little bit. Why not? Well, and how many people have estate plans? You yeah. know, it's it's the planning. The people who plan have that as part of their estate plan, and they're very proactive, and they come to us with, Dr. George, this is what's important to me. I want right. you to make sure that this is part of my medical record. I have a good number of patients And if they've done that. estate planning, right, they're probably in a typ- typically a higher income level. It's, it's not everybody who right. goes through that. So. Higher education, yeah. higher awareness, and... Again, curiosity mm-hmm. um, and being proactive. Okay. So um, I know people have confusion around the different end-of-life protocols. You mentioned estate planning. That's, a, that's even another one outside yes. of the medical sphere, right? Uh, can you explain to us the difference between all of the terminology, advanced directives, living wills, the, the pulsed or the physician order for life-sustaining treatment? Thank you. That's a good question. And I think it needs a schema. So, you know, (laughs) I wish I had my little whiteboard. But if I'm going to invite you to visualize this. So let's take the top of the umbrella and let's put the words advanced care planning. All of these terminologies that you explained go under an advanced care plan. Yes, it's just a conversation about planning as an advanced care plan. And you can have this anytime But the outcome of that could be an advanced directive. Mm -hmm. And everybody over the age of 18 should ideally have an advanced directive. You hear that, everybody? Yes. If you're over 18 and listening, get you an advanced directive. Yes. The UAMS advanced directive form is very easy to fill out. Okay. Um, And parts of the advanced directive are who will make decisions for you, which is the power of attorney, Mm -hmm. and what kind of decisions are important to you, which is the living will part. And it's a standard document. You can always add more information, but the common types of questions are about CPR, um, artificial nutrition and hydration, dialysis, and so on. And then the, the, the POLST is something... The POLST is something else that is a order. So up to this point, it can be completed by a person, uh, even at their lawyer's office, you can kind of get, uh, you know, legal zoom might be able to (laughs) lead you to a link that allows you to finish all this document. But a post is a medical order. Um, And this is not appropriate for everybody. This is appropriate for someone 
who has uh, whose physician won't be surprised if they had died within the next one to two years. Okay. So this is where the harder conversation comes in. You know, there's quite a bit of distress for both clinicians and patients and families to recognize that their loved one is not doing well. And nobody has a crystal ball. We can't project to know, you know, who's going to be alive and well and yeah. do well through rehab and so on. So it is a difficult conversation. And emotions are contagious. That's why sports is a multi-billion dollar industry, you know. <laughs> so we watch a happy movie, we feel happy. We feel, uh, if somebody is sad around us, we feel sad. And um, it's an uncomfortable conversation. And we have to sit with why is there discomfort. Um, most often, it's a lack of knowledge and skills. Mm -hmm. And if the clinician has enough knowledge and skills, then they can guide the patient and families into helping them recognize their unresolved emotions around these yeah. um, end-of-life discussions. Because as surely as we are uh, born into this world, there's a day we have to right. leave. It's our common destiny. But, you know, we want to all be go to heaven, but not in a hurry. <laughs> <laughs> not in a hurry. All right. Uh, so you're you're on the scene for the, the Physician Order for Life-Sustaining Treatment and on a national group uh, yes. around that. So tell us a little bit about that group and kind of what they do. So, you know, there's sometimes a disconnect between what a person wants for themselves and what actually ends up happening. Um, for someone who has a limited life expectancy and who has had, whose physician, and anybody can prompt these conversations. You can go on the uh, State Health Department website and mm -hmm. look up the POLST form yourself or just Google P-O-L-S-T. It, it initially stood for Physician Orders for Life-Sustaining Treatment, but while we've retained the acronym, every state has modified it to suit their own. Imagine that, state yes. do, states doing things differently. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, for Arkansas, it's still a post form. Only uh -huh. a physician can sign it. And there may be legislative changes that come up that will allow nurse practitioners and physician assistants to also do it in the near future. But for now, this bright pink form... Um, records the patient wishes by the physician as orders. So if this person has a bright pink form that is filled out, they can use it as an order wherever they go. Um, if, it, if they are in their home, we encourage them to have the bright pink original in their home so it can be easily accessed by EMT. We're also working with a wallet card. So what's mm -hmm. in your wallet? My post card. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and hopefully it follows you electronically, too, throughout the system as well. Yes. Right. So hopefully that's the future. It, lots of states have a post registry, which is a freestanding website that physicians can log in, um, like the prescription monitoring program uh -huh. website. And that's so, one of the things that the national group is trying to to achieve in, in multiple different states, right? Yes. Yeah. So the national post is also trying to get a national form throughout the states because, you know, our patients, I have patients who have a home in Florida, right. one in Maine, right. and they travel through Arkansas the and they want right? to yeah. sunbirds, <laughs> snowbirds, and stairs. Why not? So, it's you know, we don't have to reinvent the wheel every time. People may vacation in Hawaii, for example. Sure. Yeah. So the National Post is trying to get a 
one form that rules them all. I'm kidding. <laughs> but <laughs> a something standard, like that. Right? Yes. A standard, and that's yeah. where this actually came from, the um, orders. So that if a patient goes from, say, UAMS where I work to Conway well, where I don't have admitting and treating privileges, but I'm an Arkansas state licensed physician who has filled out a form, it can be respected as right. orders. Right. And they don't have to be you know, verified with the patient once again, which would be the state for someone who has just an advanced directive. Okay. That's a document that's an, that has to be interpreted by and the physician. Yeah, the interpretation and can it, get where it gets lost. Is it could. Kinda, it could be. And an order is not really, I mean... It, it, yeah. There's really no interpretation about it. It's just there and Yes. So and that's not to say it's set in stone. We can always go back sure. and change it, but in that point of time if somebody said I do not want to be resuscitated. I only want to go to the ICU and have surgery if um I cannot be comfortable otherwise. I do not want to receive uh, blood products because I'm a Jehovah's witness. And if we can document all that in that form, then, and if a, a licensed physician has signed it, then it's an order okay. that can be followed. Okay. It's not a suggestion. It's not an idea. <laughs> it's an order. <laughs> so uh, do you think that the pandemic has, has really changed the way that people think about end-of-life care? And, and, and if so, how? Great question. Um I can give you the perspective from geriatrics and for my patients who live in assisted living facilities mm -hmm. who have dementia. Mm -hmm. It's been awful yeah, because they cannot come out and socialize. They sometimes can't see very well or hear very well. And they have been required to, you know, they would have their chairs kind of at the entrance of each room. And that's where they would have their meals. Mm. So they feel sort of like prisoners right. in their own rooms. Right. And uh, it's so distressing to watch them watch, uh, you know, interact with their families through a glass window. They feel like, you know, I need to be able to reach them there they are know, you know yeah. it's so it's been hard for both patients and families and the administration because and physicians <laughs> um to keep them safe and to keep them connected yeah. um to feel make them help them feel respected valued and uh, allow them to appreciate the things and enjoy the things that are important to them sure. it's brought into sharp focus what's important and not important for a lot of people yeah yeah so um, I'm sure you've heard the phrase compression of morbidity. Um, I can't remember the name of the researcher who coined that, but um, our our president and CEO, Dr. Joe Thompson, says live well, die fast. Um, what does the phrase mean to you and, and how can we achieve it? It's a great phrase that works for some people. <laughs> I'll tell you the story of uh, a gentleman that I took care of. Um, very vibrant young man. And to me, if you're younger than 85, you're young. <laughs> so he was younger than 50. Um, artist, very talented, um, filmmaker, traveled a lot. He had all these vague symptoms and finally got diagnosed with ALS. And he made a living will that said, I enjoy doing all these things. And if this is, this is not something I can accomplish, I don't want to live. Yeah. But as his illness progressed, he accepted the next level of disability. 
because at first he couldn't swallow. But he was still very sharp, driving, working. And when he couldn't swallow well, he had to go to meal supplements. And when he couldn't do well on the meal supplements, he decided to get a peg tube. He knew how to, you know, get himself the, give himself the nutrition he needed through a tube that connected to the stomach. And then he developed respiratory problems. He needed a little respiratory support at home, so he would use a BiPAP at home. And then he needed a BiPAP during the day. And then he needed it all the time, so he went on into a ventilator. He thought he wasn't going to do those things, but he did. And then he went on to, um, he became bedridden, but he figured out how to communicate with an eye gaze reader. And he was uh, hilarious. I would say the most inappropriate things. <laughs> I met him when he was in hospice. And uh, he was ill for some time before we decided that he wouldn't want to live like this because he couldn't communicate with us. And that's when we disconnected the um, yeah. ventilator um, and let him pass. But this is an example of someone who thought that this is important to me and I right. don't want to live any other way. But his disability was prolonged. He lived it his way. Yeah. He traveled to um, L.A. in mm. a uh, chartered bus and he attended, uh, you know, he met with celebrities and wow. raised um, thousands of dollars for ALS, Alice in Wonderland. So it is uh-huh. ALS in Wonderland. <laughs> so, you know, like with the Ice Bucket Challenge, you mm-hmm. know, yeah. he found his personal mission even as he was ailing and uh, his health was failing. So I think it's important to recognize that what one shoe doesn't fit everyone and even what we thought is a good idea for ourselves, we get to change our mind. Sure, sure, sure. So I don't know if you listen to any podcasts other than this one, of course. Of course. So one of the podcasts I listen to um, is called This is Uncomfortable. I think it's a great podcast. It's about... Uh, having uncomfortable conversations or, or having uncomfortable situations. Um, and I think we can agree that, at least from my standpoint, for the general population, right, uh, end-of-life conversations can be uncomfortable. Um, so what are some of the reasons that you hear most often as to why people don't have these conversations with their loved ones? Um, and outside of a clinical setting, how would you advise patients to go about doing this? Well, um, I would work with the word uncomfortable and comfortable. (laughs) So if you're uncomfortable, I would be curious why. I have the knowledge and skills to help someone who is uncomfortable as a palliative care doctor. It didn't come overnight, but it's learned and practiced. Um, The parallel example I would draw is of a mother trying to comfort a distressed infant the child, the, you know, the infant's crying because something's not good with their world. So what do you do? You know, what does the mother do? The mother picks up the infant and rocks the child. So just holding them, being in their space, in their discomfort, and accepting that and rocking the child, the mom establishes a new rhythm with connection. So she lets the child experience her heart rhythm and just being being with her. Mm-hmm de-escalates the child's discomfort. And then the mom goes on about her business about, okay, what needs to happen now? Is the child hungry, thirsty, needing to be fed, changed, whatever, or mm-hmm. nothing, just held and rocked, you know? Sometimes there's nothing to do in terms of, you know, that's what one of my palliative care doctors used to say. It's hurry up and wait. 
and don't just do something. Yeah. Stand there. Yeah. <laughs> so just like birth, death is a natural process. You know, we think we're going to fight this and we're going to win this. Actually, no, we can prolong it and yeah. we can skew it different ways. But when it's happening, it's happening. So to stay in that distress but, and discomfort. But right for most of us, right, um, we don't want to think about that. We think it's too far away, right? So, and, and and arguably, I mean, I know for me, I didn't actually complete the forms until there was something right in my face that I had to deal with, right? And that was that being COVID nineteen. That was a risk for me, um, and really everyone. But for the most part, um, you know, disease burden typically happens later on in life and it, we're not faced with the decision about or the potential for end of life until something like that happens. So um, we can normalize those conversations. I don't know if you're an organ donor, but I am. Yes. The very first time I was like, hey, what, you expect me to be in a crash? You want to harvest <laughs> my organs? But, oh, no, I mean, it's possible I could be in a crash. Anybody could be in a crash. Right. And if that were to happen... Then what? Yeah. So it's planning for the what ifs. And just be, you know, sometimes my patients give me a funny look. They're like, why are you asking me all this? Is there something you know that I don't know? Right. And I would normalize that as a conversation and go, you know, it's just like checking a box and saying what's important to you. Right. It could be an accident, a stroke that could leave somebody who's otherwise healthy, suddenly not being able to make good decisions for themselves. So instead of guessing, wondering, having that right. burden of, uh, decision-making on the family, it's good to have direction from the patient themselves. Yeah, it's, a, it's an exercise of a right, right? We all have the right to self-determination. Absolutely. Um, Autonomy. End of life, right? Absolutely. And maybe, so maybe framing it that way is the way to, you know, Thinking about it that way. More. Just thinking yeah. about it that way. You know, the hospital, the, the physician visit in the physician office, such a small time. So right. many things to discuss. And there's things that are important to the patient, things that are important to the physician. Um, and to try to find those boundaries because we're trying to see if this patient is, for me, the first thing is I want to make sure this patient's not going to go into the ER or the hospital but between now and the three or four months that they yeah. come back to yeah. see me. So they may come to me with a hangnail, and all they care about is the hangnail. <laughs> I might be looking at their leg swelling and going, oh, my gosh, you've got congestive heart failure. Let's talk about this. So it's a matter of priorities sometimes. Yeah. But a person who has an ongoing relationship with the patient it may be usually the primary care provider, but also it could be an oncologist, a cardiologist, or nephrologist, whoever is taking care of somebody with serious illness absolutely needs to talk to them about the urgency and the need for some planning and for someone who is not doing so well um, with recurrent hospitalization and stage disease, talk to them about the post as well. Great, great. Well, thank you so much for joining the podcast today, and I hope you enjoy your uh, journey on the yellow brick road. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Wonks at Work. You can listen to our bi-weekly podcast on our website, achi.net. A special thanks to the Bobby L. Roberts Library of Arkansas History and Art, which is a part of the Central Arkansas Library System for allowing us to use their studio to record. 
If you have any topics you would like for us to consider, please email us at achi at achi.net. As a reminder, the views, information, and opinions expressed by our podcast guests are solely those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the Arkansas Center for Health Improvement. The primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. The podcast does not constitute medical, legal, or other professional advice or services. We hope you've enjoyed our latest episode, and again, thanks for listening.